Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? We are so looking forward to talking to our next guest. Stuart Mitchell is an advocate for human and animal rights. His journey began when he started to trust his instincts and question the business of practices with food companies. This journey led him on his quest his book, Kayla the Vegan, has hit his societal nerve. Please welcome him by his Instagram names, Vigilante Vegan and Voice for Change. Welcome, Stuart. Hi, how are you doing? Ready? Doing all right. So let's start by um, finding out what's the most important message you received from your family when you were growing up? The most important message I received? Yeah, from your family. Mm. Um, that's a, that's a tough question to answer. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with my page, There's Beauty in the Darkness. Um, a lot of it, I talk about my upbringing and, uh, it, it's, it's really, I had a good childhood. I don't want you to think I had a, had a terrible childhood. I, I didn't receive a lot of positive messages. A lot of it was just tolerance and, uh, negativity. So I didn't really receive a positive message. I mean, I learned how to take care of my family somewhat through their, um, their care, but uh, there was really no, no positive messages I received from anyone in my family from childhood. I'm sorry. So what about, but wait, wait, it doesn't have to be positive. What did you learn? What's the thing you took away from the way you were brought up in your uh, immediate family? Um, to just, just take care of, take care of your family. Um, mm. okay. regardless of the situation, regardless of what life throws at you, you have a responsibility to your family and you take care of family. I think that's a great message. I mean, even if it comes out of negativity, it's still a strong message. So I think that's awesome. What about, um, your father? Did you get anything from your father in terms of teaching you about fatherhood and, or what do you, what do you want to be for your children that maybe your father wasn't? I had a great father. Uh, I only knew my father up until the time I was nine years old. Uh, he passed away in 1989 from AIDS. Uh, so I have, awesome. I have good memories of my father. He was a, uh, a very stern person. He was, he was very funny when he wanted to be. So I think I get a little bit of his personality as far as like lessons about manhood and, and adulthood. Uh, again, I only knew him for a very short amount of time but in that short amount of time, like I learned from him how much he loved me and my brother. And, uh, you know, he was a single father for a while, too, until he passed away. So I just kind of replicate what he did for me and my brother and and use those tools to raise my two children. I think it's beautiful. And I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. That's an early age to lose a parent. You know, you're a big part of this effort to remove the stigma of mental health. You know, you're really open and honest about what you've experienced and what goes on in your life in real time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and you put it right there on social media. Can you talk about your decision and your process? You know, what was the idea behind it? And 
What did you go through to figure out it was the thing to do and then finally make the decision, you know? Um, throughout my childhood, like I've always felt like I haven't been heard. Uh, my voice has been silenced. My, my dealings with depression and anxiety have been minimized. And I don't blame anybody for that because I think a lot of times we do what society teaches us to do, or, you know, we do things from a cultural perspective. And a lot of times in the black community, mental health is not something that's acknowledged. So if it's not acknowledged, you can't help it. And I think that's what I was dealing with. So just dealing with the fact that I knew I was suffering and I didn't have help and people were minimizing what I was going through, not just family, but like friends and colleagues, just society, people telling you to just feel a certain way or be happy or be positive or you're thinking too negative without really understanding what a person's going through. And I, and I felt like I wasn't being heard. And I got to a dark place in my life about two and a half years ago. And I started to write about these issues. And I decided to just put it in poetry form and write and write a book about it. That way I, I can be heard. That way my struggle, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't go unnoticed. Mm-hmm. So that's really where it came from. And the me deciding to put it on social media, I think a lot of times our, our personality kind of leaks out into social media, depending on what whatever you're using your platform for. Uh, we, yeah. we expose a bit of ourselves. And I think sometimes it's our own detriment, but sometimes it's for our own benefit, or maybe sometimes it's for the benefit of other people. And I didn't, I didn't set out to help other people with talking about these issues at first. I just wanted to be heard and validated. And okay. I wrote a book about it. And I thought maybe people think I'm going to be crazy for writing this, like a black man talking about mental health issues, talking about his depression and his anxiety. Like nobody does that. But it was well received. People contacted me about the book, sent me a lot of positive messages and feedback. And I realized that this was helping people cope with their own struggles as well. Uh, people reached out to me saying, I thought I was the only one. I thought it was just me. I, w- I was going crazy. And I'm, then I realized that there's a whole world of people out there outside of just people of color, Black men that are dealing with these issues, but just don't have, they're not strong enough or have the courage enough to talk about them publicly. And I, I'm not saying that I'm the first one to do it or I'm, I'm the best that ever did it. I'm not. It's just that I, I, I just did it. And I'm glad I did it because now it gives people the, uh, the opportunity to talk about their struggles as well. So um, it was really more out of me. It was more out of self-preservation because I got to a point where I wanted to die. And because I felt like nobody understood me and what I was going through. And when I started to talk about these issues, there was some kind of like release, like it was like a breath of fresh air. Um, not to say I, I still don't deal with these issues because I do, but I was more happy that I could help other people deal with their problems along the way. Yeah, that totally makes sense. You know, Susie and I are, are therapists. I don't know if you know that or not. And so it's really interesting to understand person's struggle, but also to find out what brought you to the uh, choices you have made. And obviously they've been great choices for you. Have you ever considered therapy or have you had therapy? I've, again, two and a half years ago, I, I, I sought out therapy. Uh, I was unsuccessful in finding it. Um, I spoke to one guy, I spoke to a therapist and it made me really uncomfortable. And I figured maybe I just wasn't comfortable talking to a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did try. I didn't try again after that. I, I thought maybe, you know what, I'll deal with it in my writing. I'll write about it and I'll deal with it on my own terms. And like, really, that's where I'm at in my life right now. I mean, things have changed since since then. My life changed dramatically and drastically since, um, you know, I fell into that deep depression. 
So therapy is not something I consider now, but I don't rule it out either. And I think that there are people that need therapy and they should they should seek therapy and get it because a lot of us can't deal with these problems on our own. We don't have the, the tools to express them through writing or creativity. So what do you turn? You know, right. like some of us need therapy. I, I feel right now at this point that I'm I'm not I'm not ruling it out, but I don't feel like I need it right now. You know, you bring up an excellent point, which is a lot of people of color go to therapists and they get turned off by something and then they don't go back. Mm -hmm. And so part of the thing that we want to do is really make therapy user-friendly, help people understand that there are people who you can relate to as therapists. And so it'd be really helpful if you could tell us what turned you off about that therapist? Was it somebody who looked like you? Um, was it someone you felt familiar with? What 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 might have turned you off from the, the therapist that you saw? It could have been a number of things. It could have been the fact that that it was a guy. I don't know. It could have been the fact that I'm so used to now at this point in my life, really not talking about the issues. Rather, I would just write it out and like make it publicly known than actually sitting down and talking to somebody face to face about the okay. issues. Um, there, like there has to be a, a bit of a comfort level there as well. I don't I don't think I was comfortable doing that, especially with somebody I don't know. If it was a if it was a, a close friend of mine, I might feel a little bit more comfortable talking about these issues. But the fact that it was a, a stranger, like my aunt, um, when she took me and my brother in after my parents passed away, she put us directly in therapy. I think she thought we were needed after dealing with losing two parents. And even then, at nine years old, like it felt very uncomfortable for me to talk to a stranger about things that were happening in my life. Um, but it, it, it could have been a number of factors. Like I just those two are the main ones. The fact that it was it was somebody I didn't know and that just happened to be a man. I think that that's good information. So I hate to sound I hate to sound I don't know if you will call it reverse chauvinist. Show. No, 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 no. Around around women and talking. I have more women friends. It's, it's not like I hate yeah. men. It's, it's just. No, no. It doesn't come across that way at all, Stuart. Not at all. Uh, what, what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing is that what happens a lot in um, people of color community. We are a collective community. We're not an individualistic community. We, we, we move in relationship. We respond in relationship. Relationship is important to us. So what I hear is that it would have been great if there was a way for you to have a relationship with the person you were going to be seeking support from. I don't hear it at all as man-hating. I hear it as being in relationship with someone. And in addition to that, um, you know, you grew up with, with like you said, feeling a, a comfort with, with a woman. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Everybody has their preference when it comes to doing this type of work. And um, your mom, what, what age did you, were you when your mom passed away? I was seven. Um, she died two years before my father. So, and that's a lot. yeah, this is the eighties. They both died from AIDS. She was mm -hmm. uh, 27 years old when she passed away. I was only seven. So I only knew her for seven years of my life. And then my wow. father died two years af after she passed. It's a lot. Your, your, your journey is real. And, and speaking of that, you know, you're such an interesting brother. You know, I've been following you on, on Instagram and I just, I watch what you post and your journey to veganism. It's just another part of who you are. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think with most people, most vegans and most animal rights activists, they come from pretty damaging backgrounds. Uh, like maybe they feel betrayed by human beings at, uh, to some degree. Uh, maybe they lost trust in, in humanity and they see the innocence in animals 
and how vulnerable they are and that they need protection. And I think that's where that compassion comes from. I definitely see it. Uh, it took me a while, but I made that connection, like seeing what animals go through, what they endure and how they're tortured just so that we benefit from them. Um, you look at cows in factory farms, like these are mothers. And I think people need to recognize and understand the personhood within animals and look at them as persons and not commodified items. And I think that's where a lot of the sympathy that I have for animals comes from, just being, feeling vulnerable and, and not loved at, at some points in my life. So I think that that has a lot to do with why I'm a vegan and why I'm an animal rights activist. And how, you know, it, it all ties into each other at, at, some in, at, at some intersection at some point. You know, that uh, brings it to my next question, which is, you know, you're a social justice activist, you're an activist, animal rights activist. I was gonna ask you about the intersection of the two or, or what do you think is more important? Uh, what drives you more or, or is it the same? Like you said, they have to do with each other. Well, I mean, I, I believe in collective liberation. And what that is, is when you see the suffering and oppression in, in any marginalized group uh, and, you, and you connect with it and you, you have you have a connection to it and you want to do something about it and you speak up for it. It just, I mean, I, I put a lot of my time and energy into animal rights activism, but I don't, that doesn't take away from how I feel about the plight of black America, the plight of the LGBTQ community, the trans community, and all these other marginalized groups that suffer under the boot of white supremacy. They all have an intersection at some point, women's rights, uh, the intersection of LGBTQ and, and, and women's rights. There, there's definitely an intersection there. There's definitely an intersection with LGBTQ and, and Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, and that's the, the transgender community. You know, I, uh, one thing I have a problem with is people that say Black Lives Matter, but they're transphobic. Like, how can you be one and not the other? Like these, these transgender people that are losing their lives at the hands of police, at the hands of other Black people, and at the hands of people in general because of their, their hatred and, and mis fear of this community. And yeah. is it has to stop, number one. And number two, it's these are Black men and women that are dying. And how can we overlook that? They don't talk about the police that murder transgender people. Like, let's let's have that conversation. But there's an intersection between all of these, these groups. I mean, we all oppress animals. No matter where you come from in the world or what group, culture, race you identify with, we all harm animals to some degree, whether it's culturally, whether it's religion, whether it's whatever it is. And I think that with a little bit of kindness, we can help people make the connection between themselves, the animals and nature, because we are all one, you know, we're all living beings. That's not to take away from anybody's culture or their beliefs, it's just to help them understand that animals have as much right to live as we do on this planet as well. I mean, when you talk about the intersection between, let's say, Black Lives Matter and animal rights, there is an intersection uh, because a lot of times people don't see this, but the foods that we eat are government subsidized. Like there's a reason you can walk into a McDonald's and buy a, a hamburger for $2, but a 16 ounce cup of fruit is seven to $8. Yeah. The government subsidizes the price of meat and, and milk and dairy products so you can afford to pay for what you're eating as opposed to giving money to farmers to grow natural resources, fruits and vegetables. The fact that a lot of factory farms are located in disenfranchised communities that are predominantly 
African-American. So we are affected directly by this corporate food system. We want these systems abolished. How do we go about that? First, we have to address the issue of race and racism within uh, the corporate food system and why these things occur. Uh, Right here in New York City, there's over 80 live markets where they slaughter chickens, goats, sheep, uh, ducks, and uh, countless other animals. And they're located in predominantly Black and Latino communities. They're not on Park Avenue. You know, right. They're not in uh, the affluent neighborhoods. And that, and why is that? So mm-hmm. it is definitely an intersection there. It's racism involved and it has to be addressed. Yeah, I agree. And so perfectly said. I agree. Perfectly said. You know, I've tried. Uh, Humbling it. Being just, <laughs> like, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. Oh, go no, for it. No, it's, um, thank you. No, no, it's great. I mean, I, I've. I'm not as successful as a vegan as I'd like to be. I'm more vegetarian who slips once in a while. Um, but I, I definitely feel the cause and I hear what you're saying. I mean, I remember, you know, seeing chickens packed in the back of a, a truck. And then I was like, okay, now that's off my list. And then, you know, seeing how cute cows were. And I was like, okay, now that's off my list. So one <laughs> at a time it started to go because, and then, and then because of that, but then, and then I started to watch documentaries about how they were slaughtered. You know, I mean, mad cow disease, in my experience, happens because uh, of exactly what you're saying. People are underpaid, who are on the front line, dealing with subsidized uh, meats that are not cured and really treated um, in a way that honors their life. You know, you watch the the hunters, and uh, particularly like Alaska, and you can see the respect they have for the animals, you know, and, and thanking the animals for giving their life for their food. There's a thing, there's a, there's a journey that's happening with that regard, and that's all lost. Um, and it is based in capitalism. It is based in racism. So I totally appreciate what you're saying, applaud what you're saying, and, and thank you for breaking it down like that. I think that's so important. Yeah, and you, you raise a good point. Like when you talk about uh, people in Alaska, like, yeah, like they're not killing animals wholesale. Natural predators that, that kill to feed their, their, young, their young, are not killing animals wholesale. Like uh, the female lion doesn't go out and kill 20 gazelle because she figures, okay, I can, this will last us for a week or I could, I could sell some of the gazelles to another pride. So right. like capitalism is definitely the problem. When, we, when you can ha- have a, a building that houses thousands of animals and kill them wholesale, uh, th- that's a problem. And it's not like we're not doing it at this point. We're not doing it out of necessity. We're not doing it because we need to do it. We're doing it because it's a profit to be made. And capitalism is capitalism is the the root of a lot of our problem. Yes. And- well, well, if you look at it this way, though, I look at it. I look at it slightly different, which is, um, you know, I think of uh, racism and classism as being married, and capitalism as their firstborn. <laughs> and capitalism is what drives drives it all. It feeds the family. It feeds the legacy. And what's so disturbing about it is the cycle. Like you say, you know, where are these, what do you call them, slaughtering markets? Where are they? Yeah. In impoverished communities, right? Well, what does that do? That drives up the physical health issues. Uh, where's the cheap food? It's in the poor neighborhoods. That drives up physical health issues. Right. Well, what pays the most but medical care, you know? Not having adequate medical care that people can't afford to pay for, that keeps people sick. That feeds the production line. So it, there is a, a method to the madness. I hear you completely. And it's, it's extremely disturbing. And I don't know how to address it 
in a way that that feels direct and a way to really help people understand. So that's why I thought it was so important to have you on to talk about this. So thank you. Another question for you, shifting gears. Who is in your social circle and why? You said you have more female friends than male friends, but talk about who's in your social circle. Is it a bunch of vegans sitting around chatting? <laughs> a bunch of activists? Who is it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, a lot of my friends these days are, are all vegan. They uh, are all activists. Yeah, I, you you find your tribe. You connect with like-minded people. Not to say that I, I wouldn't mingle with people outside of that circle. I most definitely will. Um, I'm interested to learn about people's uh, different experiences in life and, and what brings them to where they are right now. Um, but yeah, a lot of my friends are vegan. A lot of a lot of activists, um, uh, mostly women. Um, I feel just men sometimes could be too competitive. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I hear women say, well, women are competitive. Well, I'm not a woman <laughs> dealing with other women. I'm a man yeah. dealing with other men and other women. So okay. a lot of times men are very competitive and very uh, jealous. And it's just, and, and also it's uh, the thing of like toxic masculinity. Like a lot of guys still have, um, whether they know it or not, very uh, misogynistic traits, very uh, just, just the thing I I mean I can't I can't explain it without sounding like I'm degrading men yeah you know uh it's just a lot of things that I don't tolerate from people and I don't like I feel like there's a lot of things like I shouldn't have to explain over and over and over to people um the use of the word bitch to describe a woman like I should not have to 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 explain to a man how demoralizing that is how wrong it is to call a woman a bitch even if you mean it and just just passing, like you don't call a woman a bitch, uh, but it's it's things beyond that. Um, I just feel more comfortable around more women. Not to say I don't have guy friends. I have a lot of guy friends. I'm more comfortable being around women as opposed to men. You know, you, I'm going to turn it over to Susie, but I just want to uh, add one thing to that. You know, you talk about, you know, uh, respecting and, and understanding that trans lives are a part of a, our community and, and that the violence that they they undergo is is it's horrifying, and there's so much deep in the psychology of what being oppressed does. You know, it teaches you to oppress, and what being abused by a, a system like of, like white supremacy does, it teaches you to abuse. And so that's the connection is really really deep, and I and I appreciate you discussing the manifestation. I also want to add we need to understand the lineage. This is a learned behavior of self-hatred and uh, that turns into hatred towards others, violence to ourselves that turns into violence to, to others. And until we do some healing around that, you know, which is removing the stigma of mental health and getting people to understand the depths of healing, yeah, we are in a cycle and it's pretty scary and pretty sad. So I appreciate all that you say and I'm gonna kick it over to Suze now. Go for it, Suze. I am with JD and you know, what, what I've been thinking about Stuart, during your conversation is, first of all, I don't know if you know that JD was my professor in grad school. So I learned about systemic racism through JD's eyes. And I knew exactly where she was going to go with all of this. But I so um, are taking in your, your curiosity about what lies outside, writing books, go, doing social media, exploring yourself. And so with that, 
I want to ask you about the books that you've written, which is, it takes a lot to write a book. My mom is an author. It's not easy. What is the, first of all, what was your process and what, what is, what is the message? What do you want people to know about your books? I want, first, I want people to know, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not an author. Like everything I do is self-published and I wrote those books through my phone, like just sitting around, putting notes in the phone, uploading it as a PDF to a website and boom, book. I'm not, I'm not an author in the traditional sense. I'm not a writer. I'm not anything in the traditional sense. I'm, I'm a guy just kind of faking my way through life. Like I'm not, I'm not. No, I, I disagree. It's it's <laughs> We're not going to have that. Reframe this all, all day long. We're not going to go with that one, Stuart. You're an author. You're a writer. You are absolutely. But we can talk about that later. Okay. <laughs> but the message that you want people to know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to that. I just want people to know, like, I don't have any advice for writing books, or because I just, I just did it. I sent my stuff to an editor. Okay. The message. <laughs> the message. Um, okay, I wrote I wrote three books. Uh, I wrote I wrote four actually. Uh, I only talk about three because the fourth one's a, a total mess. Uh, it was cre- creatively. It was I think it was like I don't know how to put it. I liked it. I liked the creative part of it, but the uh, the execution was terrible. Anyway, the the point of writing the books. There, I want to start with. There's beauty in the darkness. There's beauty. There is beauty in the darkness is a compilation of essays and poems that deal with the state of depression and anxiety from my perspective. It's my, it's what I go through. It's what I experience. And I just wanted to share that with people. The other two books are Kayla the Vegan and Liberation Summer. And basically what those books are, what they serve as is like a learning tool for young children to have more compassion for animals and more compassion for themselves. Kayla the Vegan talks about bullying it talks about compassion for animals and community. It's about a young girl that she's already vegan. She moves to a, another state and her new classmates aren't too kind of the fact that she's vegan. They don't understand her to make fun of her, which is uh, pretty much what happens in society. When we don't understand people from different cultures, beliefs or whatever, we make fun of them because like that's the defense mechanism. So she deals with this bullying, but then she starts to slowly and kindly teach them what compassion for animals means and how we can be better human beings to these animals without exploiting them. So hopefully that book, and I've, I've got a lot of good feedback from parents about it. So hopefully it, it, it is serving as a learning tool. Liberation Summer is, I wrote that for like young adults um, like high school kids. I have a daughter that's 16. So like that's basically her age group. The character in the book is 17 years old. His name is Jaden Young. And it's pretty much my story. Like he gets a job in, in food service and he starts to question the practices. Like, like, where do we get so much chicken? Like, where's all this coming from? And he starts to educate himself to factory farming. And then he starts to realize like, wait a minute, the food that we're that we're getting into this community that we're cooking for our community that they're eating is harming them it's giving them high cholesterol diabetes heart problems and it 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 talks about the intersection between what happens to animals and what happens to us as a community as a result of eating these animals and the story just it it 
it's like his journey over the course of a summer from being just a high school student to an activist to what he, I don't want to give the, the end of the book away, but to be later on in the future. And I wrote these books because I want people to get a better understanding of the world around them in regards to the animals and in regards to themselves, their health, their community, and their environment. And that's what the books, hopefully that's what the books are doing for people as, as they read them. Wow, thank you. Okay, we're gonna put you on the spot. Mm-hmm. Would you read a poem for us? <laughs> I was yeah, I was hoping I wouldn't be asked to read a poem. Um, I mean, what would you, you don't have to. No, you don't have to. I mean, in regards to what animal rights or whatever. Uh, whatever, whatever you want. Um, okay, just give me a second. I'll I'll go through my phone. I'll read something short. Um, <laughs> it's, I'll read an, an animal. I, I did this at uh, National Animal Rights Day uh, last month. It's called The Six Senses. Their soft eyes bear their souls that went unseen because your sense of sight was blinded by the lingering aroma that seduced your sense of smell. They are gentle, but your sense of touch was numbed as you succumbed to your sense of taste. Their cries echo into the night sky, but you couldn't hear them because your sense of compassion was deafened by your deception. Mm-hmm. And it's basically saying like, we have the ability to see what these animals go through, but because of cultural norms, we, we ignore it. Yes, We're seduced by the smell of flesh cooking so we ignore mm. the fact that these animals are suffering. You know, it looks good when they put it on your plate. So it's like we ignore the fact that they, they're screaming as they're being slaughtered and that they're mm. born for that purpose. So that, that was the point of me writing that poem is like we have these senses available, but we have to use them for the right thing instead of things that are appealing to us or that are self-serving to, to us. Wow. Wow. I'm just taking that in. Yeah. Um, so you have said that enslaved African-Americans have been treated like cattle. Can you talk to us about that? Explain what you, this to the audience that we have. Sure. You've been doing your homework. Right? Where'd, you, where'd you get that from? <laughs> we do our work. I, I'm, I'm glad. Okay. Um, yeah, there's definitely a correlation between uh, African slavery and factory farming, the way they they breed these animals for a purpose, to work. Slaves were labored until they died. Even, even from the time they were five years old, they, they had jobs given to them by their slave masters. And they worked these slaves until they die. They, they dig a grave and that's it. Like, that was their purpose in life, to just uh, make a profit for their master or serve their master. And we do the same thing to mother cows in factory farms. Like they, they're born just for the purpose of producing. When a cow gives birth, her daughter becomes her. They raise her into a milking cow. They artificially inseminate her so that she can lactate, so they can take her milk. And this process is done over and over again until she can't process anymore. And then what happens? They send her to slaughter. She's forgotten about. She was just another number. Uh, the, the way they treat the slaves on the plantation is the same way they treat the factory farms. It's they, they would brand slaves so that they knew 
that if this slaves run away, this is where we bring them back to. This is who owns this person. The same thing happens to cows on a farm. They're branded. They get, they're given a number. They're not a person anymore. They're a commodity. So there, there's many uh, correlations. Right. Yeah, there's so many that you can point out, but um, just that's that's why I see it. So when I see what happens to these animals, it's like, wow, like this is what I read about what happened to my ancestors. And uh, that was another another connection to, you know, veganism for me as well, is the fact that we treat these animals like they're nothing when they, they're, they're persons. You know, like in 1776, in the 1800s, like we weren't considered people, we were considered property. It's no different. That is a powerful message. And it feels like a message that means, I mean, I feel a documentary <laughs> coming on about that, which would be amazing. Stuart, is there one significant experience that you can think of in your life that's inspired or informed this journey? No, I think it's um, a, a collection of experiences. It's not one that I can pinpoint. You shared a lot. You shared a lot. You don't don't we feel good. I mean, we could have asked that question in the very beginning. So uh, 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 thank you. I, I'm going to turn it over to JD. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your oh, journey. For having me. Stuart, um, you know what you say, I just want to bring out one thing that you say that people are going to have a problem with. And I want you to just say a, a sentence about it, if you will. Mm -hmm. Seeing animals as people. I mean, there's a big argument around that. People say all the time, they're animals, they're not people. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you can say to inform them on that? I mean, how different are they from us? I mean, we make technological advances. I think that's the only difference. Like we carry cell phones, we wear shoes. But how much different are we from? If you ask me, animals have a, a, a better connection to nature than we do, and they have a better understanding of it than we do at this point because they don't exploit the earth for resources. When I mm. say that animals have personhood, what I'm saying is they do the exact same things we do as human beings. They procreate, they have babies, they protect their children, they provide for their young, they build homes for their young. They, 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 uh, they build communities. Fish have schools, lions have prides, so forth and so on. We, we do the same thing, we build communities. Like that, that is not to be overlooked that these animals are so much like us in so many ways. They have personhood. They're not ignorant. They're not dumb. They're very intelligent creatures. They just go about doing things a little bit different than we would. You know, like we, we, we become so advanced in life that we, we become a detriment to ourselves when now we discriminate people who don't look like us. We, mm treat people differently that, that don't do the things that we do. It, it's, if we could see the personhood in animals, I think it will help us to reconnect to who we are as individuals in conjunction with the planet and the environment. But animals definitely do have personhood. I, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was hanging out with a friend and we were in Jersey in a park and there was a, a duck and there were three little ducklings behind her. And I stopped to look at the ducks and she said to me, I like how you could admire this duck when everybody else just sees a duck. I said, when everybody else just sees a duck and I said, well, look, she has her children with her. Like her children are following behind her. Like 
people fail to see the personhood in that. And she didn't understand what I was trying to say. And I'm trying to explain it the best way I can. You did an excellent job. That, I mean, seriously, that was even more than I bargained for. That, that was, that's great. That was great. Very clear. And uh, so, you know, tell, tell us where we can find you. Tell people where they can find you because I want everybody to know who you are. So what's your IG handle, everything that they need to know to find you? What's up? My, my Instagram is vigilante underscore vegan. Um, I'm on a few pages. Uh, there's, there's, I, I noticed that. <laughs> uh, there's also, there's beauty in the darkness. And that's for people that are struggling with their own uh, battles with depression, anxiety, and other forms of mental health. Um, it's there's dot beauty dot in dot the dot darkness. <laughs> um, th- I, that page is not for everyone. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's not for everyone, but most people might get turned off by it because people might uh, feel attacked or people might feel that they don't they don't deal with depression and anxiety. So they don't understand it and they don't you know, like it's it's not for everyone. But yeah, yeah. those those are the two main pages that I operate from. And um, that's really it. Like I have a Facebook page, but I'm hardly on it. Uh, I have Voice for Change. That's a, a group that I, I created centered around performing arts. Uh, to advocate better for animals and also for humans. So that's really, uh, that's really it. Like Vigilante. Where, where can they get your books though? The, uh, the books are available on Amazon. It's called Kayla the Vegan. And there's also Liberation Summer. And there is Beauty in the Darkness. And just, I guess you can like search Stuart Mitchell author or Stuart Mitchell vegan and it'll come right up. Awesome. Stuart, normally we ask people what does changing the narrative mean to them? But I think you've already told us you are changing the narrative. Uh, You are such an interesting guy. I mean, I'm so happy we have you on. You really, I I hope you come on again to share where you are in your journey in the future. I would love to, definitely. All right, well, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this. Katie and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will get you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller. 